y'all, and welcome to the Jesus Conversation Podcast, where we have genuine conversations about Jesus and get to hear others share amazing stories of how the Lord has changed and impacted their lives. I'm your host, Brittany Harden. And wherever you are in your walk with Christ, or if you're just wanting to see who Jesus is, we welcome you and hope you will stick around to learn more about Him and how He can change your life too. Hey, everyone, and welcome to our third episode of the Jesus Conversation podcast. I am Brittany, and I am glad you are tuning into this episode. If this is your first time or joining us for another episode, I want to welcome you and pray these stories you're about to hear will grow you closer to Jesus and bring you encouragement. On today's episode, we will be discussing the God who changes you. I have a very special guest with us who will be sharing about his near-death experience and how God used that moment to refocus his life to follow Christ and see now what he is doing for the kingdom of God. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Ty Hirsch. Ty, thank you and welcome to the show. No. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I know I said that wrong. Ty, what is your last name and how do you say it right? It's Hirsch. Hirsch. Like like Hershey's, like the candy. Yeah. I knew I was going to mess that up. Living in Germany has just it, messed up my no pronunciation. Worries. No worries. <laughs> well, Ty Hirsch, yep. welcome to the show. That's <laughs> okay. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited you're yeah. here. So, Ty, I was trying to think about this the other day. Like, how, how did we meet officially? Do you remember? So, one of the things I will just give you a, a pro tip for is if you ever ask a church staff member at a large church how you met somebody, <laughs> you're probably not going to get a super clear answer because in all honesty, I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> there, It could have been on a Sunday morning. It could have been through small group. If I had to guess, I probably heard about you and, and Garrison before we actually met in person just because names of church members get thrown around the church office all the time because we're like, what did this person say? What did this person do? And so I probably knew about you guys, and then we actually met at small group in person for the first time, if I had to guess. Uh, that's probably but, a good guess. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, I'm so excited you're here, and thank you for taking time out of your yeah, day to join for us. Sure. So you have an amazing story. And before we dig into that, because I know I'm super impatient, just want to hop in. I really <laughs> just want the listeners to know a little bit about you as a yeah. person. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I was born in Dallas, but I grew up in Southern Illinois. And so I kind of claim a little bit of both. Um, And whenever I say something that sounds super Midwestern, I like to be like, oh, I'm so sorry. My Midwest is showing. Like (laughs) like I say mom, M-A-H-M type stuff. Um, But my mom's family is from down here. They grew up in the Fort Worth area. And I grew up coming down here to visit family all the time from Illinois. So all the people that knew me in Illinois knew me as a Texan person who just so happened to live in Illinois, and all the Texan people knew me as an Illinois kid who came and visited sometimes. <laughs> so it's like I was a little bit in both. But um, my dad was from up there, and from the time I was two months old, I lived up there. So Illinois was home, um, and in a lot of ways still feels like it. Um, but I've been here in Texas now since 2016. So I went to college for a couple years in Dallas, at Dallas Baptist University. And then um, at the end of that time, I took a job at Greenwood, and uh, kind of spent a few months traveling back and forth between Dallas and Weatherford and making that awful drive on 20. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, but, yeah, that's that's kind of how it's been since then. So moved to Texas in 2016, uh, took the job at Greenwood in 2018, and have been here now in Weatherford for five years. Um, met my wife here. We had our son here. Um, we're trying to buy a house in this area, so like the, Weatherford is definitely home. So that's awesome. So, yeah. will you tell people what you do? What what is it? Like, yeah. Your actual job is. So, my official title is associate pastor of middle school students and young adults, which is really long. Um, <laughs> but when I'm just conversating with people, I'll tell them I'm the middle school pastor and the young adults pastor. So that just means that it's my job to set up and equip a team of volunteers um, to set up and equip families to set up and equip their middle school students to follow Jesus. And so um, I do meet with students, and uh, my job is directly with students, but I see um, my most effective way to do that job by setting my team up of of a a group of adults to love those kids really well. Um, And so we have sixth through eighth graders that come every Wednesday and every Sunday, and then we do um, events throughout the year with them, and I get to have the blessing of being the one that – spends all my time thinking about them and and how to help them and especially their parents 
um, to, to lead them to know and follow Jesus with everything they have. So, And I bet in this time and age, it's, it's really hard. I feel like our middle school leading up to high school can get incredibly confused with the way that the world Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Well, and middle school is a confusing time anyway. Oh, you know, true. <laughs> you don't know if you're an adult or if you're a kid, and then you throw the internet in there, and then you take away regulation from <laughs> that. You know, it's, it's you'd be surprised how common it is to find you know eleven year olds who have had unfiltered access to the internet by that at that point for like four or five years already, wow. and you know you put a kid who has no impulse control and you know doesn't have the wisdom of years of life and then give them all the access to everything in the world, good and bad, it, it, it can lead to some pretty crazy things. I will say one thing I love about working at Greenwood is that we're, we have a church full of families that recognize that potential danger. Um, and we're one of the only middle school ministries I know of that the majority of our kids either don't have phones or if they do have phones, don't have access to the internet on their phones. Yeah. And so I find myself among other youth pastors that focus on middle schoolers in a unique place where they're all like, what do you do to help your kids not be so addicted to their phones? And I'm like, don't give them a phone. Most of my kids don't have phones. So, you know, it, I have unique challenges, I think, in that way. But it's a cool it's a cool challenge to have. So That's cool. And have you, I mean, this, I know this is kind of swaying away from what we're talking about today, but when you're dealing with middle school kids who come to you and say, you know, Pastor Ty, you know, all my friends, granted, I can't speak or attest to this to every child, but assuming some kids come to you mm-hmm. and say, my friends have access to phones, you know, what do you say to those kids who don't? Well, you know, I a lot of times kids that, that that see their friends doing something, whether it's phones or anything else, and and want to do that thing, but their parents won't let them. That their their parental involvement is usually the reason why they can't do it. And so, my my number one response in all of those moments is, "Hey, have you talked to your parents about this yet?" Like, I I I, I don't want them to do anything as a youth pastor that undermines the parents' ability to disciple their children first. Right. Um, and so you know, a good example of how this functions is the way we do our summer camp stuff. So when we do summer camp, we have a team of college students that come in that their number one job is to just make camp fun. They run the games. They do the chants. They dress up crazy. They I tell, I tell them in the training meeting we have at the beginning of the week, if you don't lose your voice by the end of the week, you're doing your job wrong. <laughs> like, you need to be doing this at the top of your uh, your ability. Um, and I train them in that meeting to say, you're going to have kids from other churches who are going to come up to you and want to share all their deepest, darkest secrets with you because you're the cool college leader that they look up to. But our goal is to send them home with their youth pastors in in ways that we can equip their youth pastors to love them and, and disciple them because you're not going to be there next Wednesday, but their youth pastor will. That's awesome. And so... You know, if, if a kid comes to you and says, hey, I want to tell you about all these things. What do I do? How do I follow Jesus in this area of my life? Your first response should always be before you give them any advice, have you talked to your youth pastor about this? And if they haven't, then your next step is to set them up to talk with their youth pastor about it before you finish the rest of the conversation. Because everything you hear in the rest of that conversation, you're going to bring to me and we're going to bring together to their youth pastor to set that youth pastor up to, to actually disciple that kid and actually help that kid as they go on. So parents are the same way. If a kid comes and says, if my friends, my friends have these phones or my friends get to go do this or whatever and I don't get to do it, then my first response is going to be, well, have you talked to your parents about it yet? Yeah. And if they haven't, then I'm, like, I'm going to say, okay, well, we should, you know. Yeah. And I'll, I'll sit there with you in that conversation if you want me to, but you need to talk to them about it. And that's that's happened for me as a youth pastor with phones. It's happened with pornography addictions. It's happened with all kinds of different things that kids have come to me with. And, you know, I, I, I don't see myself. I know myself well enough and know my weaknesses, which is something we're really going to talk about today. <laughs> um to know that if a kid comes to me and I act like I can do everything and fix everything for them, that I've missed it and I'm not actually doing my job. I'm. Right. It's become the tie show at that point, and not the Jesus show. Um, and my leader, I'm making T-shirts right now for all my leaders that say "Make Jesus Famous" on the back of them, Love so we can it. constantly be reminded of the idea that Jesus is our lead story. He is the most important thing. And if we're not pointing kids back to Him, um, then we're shooting ourselves in the foot. And we need exactly. to do that through their parents first. So I love that. I love yeah. that's great stepping stones, and I feel mm-hmm. like that's a lot of biblical truth that needs to be set in stone yeah. to get them prepared for what comes later. Yeah, I mean, at sure. any age, honestly. Right. All right, Ty. Well, I am chomping at the bit, and I am <laughs> so excited to to hear and to just dig into your story. So yeah. I'm going to give you full mic and just say whenever you're ready. Let's hear it. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, well, first of all, I, I'm I'm grateful to get to tell this story. When when I f- when I first went through everything um, in this story, I told it 500 times over. I mean, I had youth groups that in the area that I grew up in asking me to come share. Like one night, I went to two different lock-ins and shared this story at one lock-in and then drove across town to another church and shared it again that same night. And it's been a long time since I've gotten to just sit and tell the whole story. And so I appreciate, you know, you asking me to do this because God did some really cool things in it. So, yeah, I, so I think I was 20, I was 21 years old. Um, I'm 20, I'm about to turn 29 this fall. So it's been quite a few years, but, um, I had the blessing in college of working at a summer camp called Sky Ranch. It's in East Texas. And I was a summer camp counselor for them for three years. And going into my second year, during the school year between, I convinced a friend of mine named Ryan, who worked with me at Chick-fil-A, to apply as well. And so he ended up getting a job at uh, the same camp, doing a a different job. He was going to facilitate activities for the summer. But Ryan um, was not the kind of guy who made long road trips um, in other parts of his life before then. And so... Uh, I remember we looked up the the drive from where we lived to where camp was, and it was nine hours. And I've done 18 hours in a day before. And he looked at that nine hours, and he goes, can we stop halfway and, like, stay the night? And I was like, buddy, (laughs) nine hours is nothing. Um, But I I realized as we got to talking about that kind of stuff that that it would probably benefit him before we got to camp, which when when Sky Ranch is full, there's a 1,000 people on the campground. um, And a good 300 of them are the staff. And so, you know, there's two weeks of staff training and then 11 weeks of the summer. And it's just, for somebody that was not used to going out and doing big things and meeting a bunch of new people, it could have been overwhelming for Ryan. I I wasn't sure how that was going to play out for him. Turns out he's even more extroverted than I am, but that's what I get, I guess, for assuming. (laughs) And so uh, I I went kind of scouring around the, the groups of people I knew from having worked at Sky Ranch already to find out if there was a place near us somewhat that had a good concentration of them where we could go for a day or two and he could meet those people and we could just have a little weekend guys trip thing that was expressly for the purpose of getting him to interact with people from Sky Ranch. And so we planned this weekend to go to Fayetteville, Arkansas. From We lived in the St. Louis area at the time, so it's about five hours or so um, for a drive. And so we thought we'll go on like a Friday, we'll spend all Saturday there, and then we'll go to church with them on Sunday morning because the church we went to didn't meet until Sunday nights. And so we had oh. the time to meet for church on Sunday morning with them and then go ahead and drive and basically roll right up to our own service um, in the evening on Sunday. So we, we planned this whole weekend. We went to see a concert Friday night in downtown Fayetteville, and then we met some people at Whataburger for dinner and stayed up late into the night. And then there's a TV show that we all watched that had released a new season on Netflix um, that the buddies of mine from camp that we were staying with had set up like 500 TVs across the <laughs> living room and they were all connected to multiple computers and they would all just hit space bar at the same time and like play all the video. And that way there wasn't a bad seat. And we watched the entire season of that show until like four or five in the morning. And then we all slept until like noon. And all of those are really important because it kind of sets up why we ended up where we ended up. So, um, we decided that we had to spend the Saturday afternoon somehow. We weren't going to sit around in the house and do nothing. And uh, we found out there was a hiking trail because it's Fayetteville, Arkansas. There's tons of hills and trails and the Ozarks, and it's beautiful. And so we found one called Hawksbill Crag. Or I think that's technically the the, the actual name of it is Whitaker's Point. Um, but it's called Hawksbill Crag casually because it's a down and back trail that at the very end of the trail before you turn around and go back – it has a giant cliff that comes off the mountain that looks like a hawk's bill. Oh, and it's wow. like stone. Um, it's just exposed cliff. It almost kind of looks like the bottom part of Pride Rock on the Lion King. Yeah. Um, but it's coming out of the trees. And uh, so we went to this trail to to go see that, that cliff. And, um, you know, if, what they don't tell you if you're not familiar with the Ozarks is that when you're going on a trail like that um, – you're actually up high in what are considered small mountains, but it doesn't feel like it because the, you're not at, at an elevation where the trees don't grow, so it just feels like a really hilly forest that you're in. But every once in a while, you'll turn a corner, and there'll be this giant cliff off to your side that reminds you, you know, where the ground has fallen, that 
that you're actually much higher than you think you are. And uh, so on the way out to that to that cliff, there is a place on that trail where the the trail kind of goes alongside or goes over a creek basically, and then alongside where that creek goes over the cliff. So the the the, the creek is small. It's not very not very heavy flow of water unless there's been a lot of rain or whatever. There hadn't been much then because it was the beginning of March, so spring hadn't even really started yet. Yeah. And uh, I remember we crossed over. There were four of us as as my, myself, Ryan, um, another friend of ours from Illinois named Michael, and then our friend from Arkansas, uh, Keith, who was uh, from Keller, actually, originally. Oh, wow. And uh, so we... <laughs> We cross over this creek, and we realize that as it goes off the edge of this cliff next to us, that the cliff it first falls over is only like 10 feet. And there's like a, a big, long, probably 10, 15-yard platform of rock with other big trees growing on it that clearly is solid enough that a, you know, a 50-foot tree can grow on it. And so we were like, let's climb down onto that little platform and look around. So all four of us did. We're looking around this platform. Um, it has its own cliff you know, on the edge of it. So it's kind of like steps, you know. They're stepping down. And uh, I got close to that edge of that second cliff and looked down over. It was like a 50-foot drop, and there were two trees that were just perfectly set up to hang an Eno hammock between, which I had in my backpack because I was that outdoorsy person then. And, uh, and I still am. I just don't hike as much as I used to. And, um, I looked ahead of me and saw two ways to get down to those trees. One of them was kind of behind the waterfall area, which looked like you know, it was wet rock, but it was wide enough that I felt like I could get under there and go over to the, the far side of the waterfall where it sloped down easy and went down to those trees. Or I could climb back up, go around the waterfall altogether, and go down. Well, I thought, I'll just go behind the waterfall because it's faster. But I didn't even get to get to the waterfall because I took one step. And mind you, I was still by the edge of the cliff when I th- decided all this. And my foot stepped right, I stepped my foot right onto wet, mossy rock. Um, and I didn't realize that that's where I like thought I was already that close to the wet rock. And so that left foot slipped off and I had nothing to catch myself, but I didn't, I wasn't running. I, I wasn't jumping. So there was nothing about my momentum that made me tumble or flip or revolve in any way. And so I just kind of fell in a standing up position straight off the cliff and then hit the rocks on the bottom feet first. And the next thing I remember is people surrounding me. Um, We found out later that there was, well, I found out later because I had a concussion. So, I mean, everybody else in the the moment knew. But uh, there was an ER x-ray tech on the trail. There was a physician's assistant on the trail. There were two RNs on the trail. Um, And then there was a girl who... I feel like if you've ever been hiking, you know there's people like this that you go out um, and they have a backpack full. It's like they went to REI and bought everything <laughs> REI has, and they just carried it with them on the trail. This girl had like the the camp the campfire or whatever the the mugs that have like the speckled design on them. She had aluminum mugs. She had like flares and a first aid kit, and she had a, a foil blanket and. I was in khaki shorts and a t-shirt and chacos, and it was March in Arkansas. So it went when the sun went down, it got cold fast. And she had that foil blanket to wrap me up in. Um, the ER X-ray tech, she held my head still, um, so that I, if I had any neck injuries or anything, that she, you know, it, I wouldn't get any any more hurt. Um, and the PA guy kind of ran the show for first aid response, and then the RNs kind of did whatever he needed them to do. Um, it took an hour and a half for the field and game officer to show up, I think. Um, the, the the timeline gets kind of fuzzy for me because I've heard different versions of it from different people, and I had a, I was concussed, so for me it all felt like that. Yeah. Um, but uh, I know that it took a while for the field and game officer to get there, but he had morphine, so he was my best friend <laughs> once he got Good there. Yeah. Um, and then not long after him was the actual EMS response team. Um, they flew a helicopter in and landed it in a field up by the trailhead. Um, and then a team of about 30 volunteers wow. um, showed up as a resp- result of a police scanner call. Um, that I found out later those people and about another 150 sit and listen to police scanners every season for people that get hurt out there. And that's all they do. They, they go and they volunteer to get people out of emergency situations. Wow. And so those people 
were waiting for me to fall, um, which is wild. But they carried me out by hand on a stretcher off that trail up to the trailhead where they put me in an ambulance and then took me from the ambulance to the helicopter. And the helicopter flew me from there in Arkansas to Springfield, Missouri, where they did all my ER work. And then 10 days later, because of a bunch of insurance craziness, um, I had my surgeries on uh, so my elbow and my foot were both broken. My foot was the worst. It took everything in my elbow. Um, my radial head broke off. So your radius is shaped kind of like a capital P. It's filled in. And the the circle part of the P broke off. And there's two screws to this day holding that in. And there was hardware all in my foot holding it together while it healed, but it's been removed now. And so... Um, now, this is just your left side, right? All my left side. My right side had some scrapes. Um, I also had 30 stitches in my forehead. I had a big gash that went up into my hairline. That one's harder to see now because my mom was like, you need to use Mederma. You need to put Mederma on your scar. <laughs> Every day. And uh, I did, and it worked. So if you ever have a bad scar, you know, it's not sponsored not at all, sponsored. but Mederma really works. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's kind of like the physical side of the story. I mean, I that is how it all happened on that day. Um, spiritually, I was in a weird place. You know, I, I grew up. Um, as a pastor's son, my dad, we moved to Illinois when we did because my dad took the job as the youth pastor at the church he grew up in, which, um, I love that church. I, you know, there were times when I was a kid that there were things about it I did not like. Um, you know, they're a King James only singing hymns from the hymnal, you know, lights all the way on during worship type of church. Um, and you know, as a young bullheaded, you know, arrogant kid, there was a lot of things about it that I thought, well, if we did just did this different or did this way this way or did these things this way, then then things would be different and people would come and 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 all the all the while my dad's trying to lead this church and navigate this church through, you know, really difficult seasons. You know, there were there was church drama in the late nineties and early two thousands when he finally went from he went from youth pastor to senior pastor in two thousand one. And then um you know, once they finally got the church out of all that drama, then the housing market crashed a couple years later. And so then money was awful. And in Illinois, you know, recessions hit harder in states like Illinois than they do in other states that take care of their money better. Um, but uh, is it, I didn't realize everything that they were going through. And so, um, I, I, you know, I learned so foundationally to my identity and who I am, how important it is to know Jesus and to listen to his voice from my dad, from my mom, from my grandparents, um, from the other members of that church. There's, there's, I could list probably two or three couples off the top of my head, and I know there are more that were like adopted grandparents to us too. You know, um, The youth pastor that my dad hired um, when I was in the end of middle school, beginning of high school, you know, and then their family, just all these people who just poured into me how important it is to know and follow Jesus. And, and I had grown up in that. And now I was in college. It's the first time I'm having to like own my faith for myself. I actually got saved at 16, um, but didn't really show people who Jesus was to me or what I was doing there. And, and so not long after I turned 21, a couple months before this all happened, I got baptized um, because I had told people I had been saved two times before I was 16. And at the church I grew up in, if you get if you want to be baptized, you go up in front of the whole church and you tell everybody, you know, now normally it's because you've talked to the pastor beforehand or whatever, but they're con- they're completely congregationally led. Okay. So, you know, if somebody wants to get baptized, the whole church is going to vote like, because we had, they have the spiritual authority in that organization. You know, do we recognize this person is an actual candidate for baptism biblically or not? And so you have to stand in front of the whole church for that. If they're the ones that have the spiritual authority. Right. And so I had done that twice. And then I got saved at 16, and I was like, I can't do this a third time. You know, third strike, you're out type of thing. And I was so afraid that I just didn't tell people that I got saved when I was 16. Um, I let them think that when I was 12 that it had been real. Um, and by the time I got to 21, you know, my parents knew the whole time. Spiritual things kind of all collided to where God was like, we need to have this conversation. And so my dad was like, you need to settle the issue of your baptism now. And so I did. Um, and I got baptized at 21. My dad got to baptize me. It was super cool. That's cool. And uh, then a couple months later, this all happened. And I remember when I first got baptized, I wrote about it. And I had a, a little WordPress blog, which I, I still have it. I haven't written on it in years now. But um, 
I wrote a, a, a little few paragraphs of thoughts about why it was important that I was getting baptized. And I remember saying, you know, if I'm going to tell people I follow Jesus and he is my king, I need to be honest with that for myself and do the first thing that he told everyone who follows him to do, which is to put on the uniform of the team I say I'm on. Wow. You know, and that's getting baptized. So I'm walking around everywhere telling people I'm on Jesus' team and not wearing his uniform. I got to get baptized, you know, and and actually show people that it's real. And so that's when I did that. And it was like, now I can finally hear what God is telling me to do. You know, it's like our, our pastor, Pastor Brian, always says, if you're wondering what God wants you to do and you can't figure it out, go back to the last thing he told you to do and, and do, do it, it. <laughs> and then you'll hear. And that's exactly what happened before I even had heard that from Pastor Brian, you know. And so um, I I went into that weekend— with a weird disconnect feeling like, yes, I've put on the, the uniform, but my daily life doesn't look like somebody who's following Jesus. I mean, I was, I was addicted to pornography deeply. Um, I, I had a weird relationship with alcohol. Like I never, I've never in my life been drunk, but I, at that time, um, kind of saw this, oh, I have freedom in Jesus to drink alcohol, so I'm going to do it. And I, I almost like spent too much time thinking about how I would take care of my relationship with alcohol, that even though I wasn't drinking it much, it was like I was spending so much time thinking about it and caring about it that it was like I'm taking up space in my mind and my heart with alcohol that should be filled by Jesus, even if I'm not getting drunk. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And uh, it was to the point that like when I got hurt and I was concussed and they're carrying me out, I vividly remember a moment where I told one of the guys carrying my stretcher, like, ah, man, I would really love a blue moon right now or whatever (laughs) beer I said. And I remember the field and game officer was like, what was that? And the guy on the stretcher goes, ah, patient says he needs a beer, sir. (laughs) And I didn't need one, you know. I needed the hospital. But, like, it was so deep in my thought process that it just came out in that moment. But what was—and this is why I say it was a weird place spiritually. What also came out in that moment was Jesus. Over and over again, I asked—so Cindy Royer is the name of the lady who held my head. I I connected with her that day and told her my name on Facebook, and I was like, you add me because I can't add myself on Facebook, and I want to keep up with you, and I want to say thank you. And there were a couple other people that helped me that day that did the same thing with, and I just remember telling her over and over, have you met Jesus? Because he's so awesome. He's so cool. And he's amazing. I love him. And, you know, and she's like, well, you know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, and— well, I don't remember all exactly the things that she said because, again, I was concussed. But I just remember that, you know, in one moment, I was a living embodiment of when Jesus or when James in, in James 3 talks about how, you know, spring can't give fresh water and salt water at the same time. I was doing that. I was like, let's talk about Jesus. Also, give me a beer, you give know, like back and time. forth, <laughs> back and forth. And again, you know, I'm not trying to say that the alcohol itself is a bad thing is there's not necessarily a scripture that says that you should never drink alcohol. Right. But there are multiple scriptures that talk about different ways that you can give yourself over to alcohol. For sure. And though I hadn't gotten myself drunk, I was still allowing it to take up all of my time and thoughts um, because I wanted so badly to be able to do something I had been so afraid of doing before I turned 21. Right. Um, and so um, I just, I do remember as I fell though, And this is kind of what shook me to my core. I don't remember these thought processes in all of these words because it's going to take me about a minute and a half, maybe two minutes to explain what I was thinking. I didn't fall for that long. But you know how your brain can connect ideas pretty quickly, Mm -hmm. you know, from one to the next in 10 seconds or so. Well, this is kind of how my thought process went as I fell. The first thing I thought was, if you keep walking forward, this is what's going to happen. Like my brain convinced me that it was making this up to show me why I shouldn't keep walking closer to the waterfall. Does that make sense? Like a preventative, like exactly trying to prevent you from doing yes. it. Yeah. But then the vision, quote unquote, kept going. Okay. And I realized this is real. Yeah. Like this is not my brain making this up. It, it's here we go. You know, this yeah. is it. You're going to hit the ground. And you have to figure out how you feel about that. And so the next thing I thought when I realized this is actually happening was how tall it was. And I was like, I remember what it looked like when I looked down a second ago. I'm not going to make it. Like, there's, there's no way out of this. I'm, I'm going to die. And I, when I've told this story before, I tell people it was, it was as real to me as if someone had put a gun to my head. You know, not because I was like trying to jump off 
or because I had set up the situation to be that way, but because where I was in that moment and what I realized from the things surrounding me was there is no way out of this. Yeah. I am a weak, small, broken human being who has been flung off the top of a 50-foot cliff. I was suddenly hit with my own depravity and my own humanity and inability to fix my life because it looked like it was about to end. And I was convinced of it. And the last thought I remember having before I hit the ground was, if this is it, let's go. Which should not have been the last thought that I had. I, fear and I are mortal enemies. Um, and fear has usually been a lot stronger than I have been over my life. I had a girlfriend in high school who tricked me into seeing The Purge in theaters. And, you know, for a thriller movie like that, all of the previews are going to be for, like, horror movies and things like that. And so there was a scary movie preview that by the time the preview was over, I was on the floor of the theater, like, I don't want to see it. I need to get out of here. Like, almost like PTSD type of stuff from something, I don't know, in the past. Um, I've been told I was exposed to the movie Anaconda when I was a young kid, so maybe that was it. I don't know. But (laughs) I I just fear it. The point is, fear and I don't get along. Right. And um, it always seems to want to be around. And so um, there have even been times in my job where my boss, John, has, like, looked at me and been like, I remember one time on the phone he had to be like, Tyler, you don't have to worry about whether or not people at Greenwood are wondering if Ty's a good youth pastor. Like, they're not wondering that. But, but I was wondering, like, what am I doing wrong? What, like, what is everybody say, thinking about me? Like, there's a fear was just caving in on me, and he saw it in my body language. And he was like, chill. It's okay, you know? So um, when I'm faced with the reality of my own death, I shouldn't be like, okay, this is it. Yeah. That's not me. That is not the tie that most people know. Um, And I realized in that moment that the reason why I felt that was not because I was perfect. It was not because I did things right. It was not because God had some special plan for me that he doesn't for anybody else. He does, you know, specific to my personality, but that wasn't what was happening in that moment. What was happening in that moment was the peace that passes understanding in Philippians 4. When Paul's like, you follow Jesus and you're going to have a peace that does not make sense in moments where it shows up. Right. And it didn't in that moment. And then I woke up after it and I was like, okay, whatever, God. And it it wasn't like I wanted to die. You know, like it wasn't like me saying like, all right, I'm going to throw myself off this cliff because I'm just done with the world. Right. I wasn't depressed. I wasn't, you know, dealing with suicidal thoughts, anything like that. It was me saying, I don't see any way out of this. Actually, I do. Wait, Jesus is the way out of this. Yeah. And I believe him. And I, I sincerely believe that that thought existed in my mind because God had been changing me over those months. And even the years leading up to my baptism where I finally was like, I'm done. And again, my baptism didn't save me. My baptism was one of my first steps in my life where I was like, all right, Jesus, I said when I was 16 that you are my savior and you're my king, you're my Lord. Now I'm going to act like you're my king right? and do what you said. And when that shift happened, that's when the biggest changes started to, to take place in my behavior, in my mind. My, my standing with God changed when I was 16. Right. My behavior and the way I experienced my standing with God changed when I was 21. And that fall off the cliff was one of the first times where it really showed up in a way that I couldn't ignore. And what sucked about the aftermath was when I got off the cliff, the doctors prescribed eight weeks of non-weight-bearing movement on my arm and my foot. So I had to hop around on my right side only for eight weeks. And I, that, that's severe whiplash for a guy like me. Like I went from, you know, working at Chick-fil-A six hours or more a day and interacting with hundreds of people through there, super extroverted, trying to find ways to hang out with my friend group outside of that, always talking in class and not sitting in the back. And I was never the quiet kid in class from kindergarten all the way on. You don't say. Yeah, never. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I just went from all of that to stuck in my childhood bed at home as a 21-year-old grown man. My mom had to help me take sponge baths, you know. It, It... 
and my friend, I was an hour away from where all my friends were. You know, I, I ran through everything Netflix had and just watched everything, and because I didn't have anything else to do, and. This, the, that was going into my second summer of camp, and so that summer was threatened. Now, like, do I do I work there? You know, over the time that I had been um, getting to know this camp and getting to know the people at it, I realized that God really had some kind of special calling for me through stuff like that. That there was just a part of my soul that lit up when I was getting to help kids know and follow Jesus like that. And I had expressed long before that I felt like God was calling me into ministry of some kind, but I didn't know it was going to maybe look like camp ministry like that. And so I was starting to make plans to set up my career for camp ministry. I was I transferred to Dallas Baptist so that I could take uh, get a degree in camp ministry, which they offer, and oh, is wow. so cool. Um, and now all of a sudden, all of that's off the table, supposedly. And that, you know, it was March, I guess. And by, by Easter of that year— um, there were multiple nights throughout that recovery process where the pain was just awful because it just would ache, you know, from you had surgery or because it had been broken or whatever other thing made things hurt. And if the medicine wore off and it wasn't time to take more yet, I just had to sit there and deal with it. And I remember vividly one night, um, the physical pain was about the same and the emotional pain really hit hard when I was like, I don't know if everything God has said he has called me to do now is, is gone. Like, what does that mean? Did I mess everything up because I was stupid enough to get too close to the edge of a cliff? I was crying and reached over and grabbed my phone and called my mom, who was down the hall, but I couldn't go get her to yeah. come. To, you know, I wasn't going to yell and wake everybody else in the house up. And we were at my grandparents for Easter, so we traveled down to Texas, and I just remember laying in that bed and thinking, like, is it all over? And so I called her, and she just sat in bed with me and held me while I cried. And she's like, I don't have an answer for you, bud, other than I know that God is good, and he's going to get you through this. And, you know, I stopped crying eventually. I didn't feel any better, but I stopped. And, you know, I was like, I think I'll, I, I, I don't feel any better, but I know logically well enough to know that I'm going to be okay. I just need to sleep some, you know, and move on from this and we'll, we'll address the root of this whenever it's time. And, uh, she went back to bed and I woke up the next morning and had a good day and, you know, time went on. And as God moved through the rest of those years up until now, there were moments where he brought to light different things that, that helped me understand kind of what he was doing. But one of the biggest ones was, um, Matthew 21, 44, where Jesus says, you know, People were people were mad at Jesus for the things he was saying, and they were coming at him because he was, in effect, threatening their stands in power, um, and which they never probably should have had in the first place. But and even if they were supposed to have it, they abused what they had. And so um, Jesus telling everybody the truth revealed the lies they had built their whole system on. Um, and the lies were not the laws of God because they would they would told they would have told you God's laws were what they built their system on and technically that's true but their interpretations of God's laws God's laws and what they meant was really what the foundation they had their stuff on was and it was crumbling because Jesus was exposing those lies and so um Jesus starts quoting the old testament in response to their accusations of him breaking the law which he wasn't doing and he says I think it's from Isaiah but he quotes and he says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and he's talking about himself, that they're, the people who were supposed to build a house together, his people, God's people, the Jews, were supposed to become this group of people that all the world could look to and say, that's how you interact with God. That's who God really is. But the problem was, and the Old Testament makes this very clear, that just because they were God's chosen people didn't mean that they didn't have their own problems too, and right. that they weren't also part of the problem, and they were. And so, though God had promised to Abraham that he was going to use those people to save the world, he still had to save those people too. And so, they were meant to be the builders, but they rejected the cornerstone, which is now everything is built on this cornerstone. And if you're not familiar with ancient architecture, what what... Isaiah and now Jesus is saying is that, you know, they would build these old buildings with the cornerstone being the first piece they would put down. Um, they had to find a stone or carve a stone if they couldn't find one um, that was as perfectly square as they could get it to the dimensions they wanted their building to be. Um, and if it wasn't right, then the rest of the building would be off because they would build the walls off of that corner piece 
um, the cornerstone. And so Jesus is trying to say, like, you rejected this, this me, this teaching, this this idea, this stone. Um, but it's actually the cornerstone. It's actually the point of everything. Like everything is built on me. It's all on Jesus, which is why our ministry is all focused on making Jesus famous. Um, and then Jesus goes on to say, if anyone falls onto this stone, he will be broken to pieces. But on whomever the stone falls, he will be crushed into powder. And it's Jesus' poetic imagery way of saying, if you allow yourself to fall on Jesus, you will break. Because if you haven't fallen on Jesus, then what you have is a sham. Yeah. It's, it's a shadow, broken version of the real thing. It's like, you know, I grew up near the Mississippi River. At the, the headwaters of the Mississippi, the water is clear. It is beautiful, and it is bright. You can put your hands into it and drink it up in Minnesota where it starts. But if you go to New Orleans or even St. Louis, where I grew up near, not even halfway down the river— the dirt and the trees and the trash that have all been thrown into that river have made it this muddy, awful mess, and it's it's dirty. And what Jesus is saying is, we're all down in St. Louis, New Orleans, that part of the river, trying to drink from the water and get satisfaction, where Jesus is saying, no, the real thing is up here at the source. That's me. And if you want the real stuff, come to me. Every good, James 1 says, every good and perfect gift comes down from God. And right. he does not turn around and cast a shadow on you because he turned away from you. Which means you want the best of the best, the good, great stuff, you go to Jesus. You don't go anywhere else. Right. Every truly wholesome, good, and perfect thing you know starts in Jesus. Love. And this is why the fruits of the Spirit are listed like this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And, and Paul says at the end of that list, against these things, there is no law. And it's funny because you think he's talking about God's law. Right. But then when you think about it, look at human laws. Have you ever seen a human law that goes against being able to actually just truly love someone, giving them what they need even when they don't deserve it? Mm-mm. Joy, peace, patience, kind. Like humans don't tend, they don't draw towards those things and are at least making laws against those things because they're truly good, wholesome, pure things and they all come from God. True. And so Jesus is saying, if you fall on him, you will break to pieces because what you have is that dirty water. It's that broken image. He's got to break that. Like he broke my foot and he broke my elbow to reconstruct it back together into something good. And, you know, if, if you wait and you don't allow Jesus to break you, then one day he won't just break you. You will be ground into powder. And it's not Jesus saying, I'm mad at you. It's Jesus saying, you want something that's not me, and I love you enough to let you have it. Yeah. But when you choose a life that's not following Jesus, what you end up is a life with a life that has none of those good and perfect things that come from God. And the end of Revelation says that the people that end up in that camp are going to get cast out because God's new perfect creation is not going to have those bad things. Right. It's only going to be those good things. But if you want those things, you can have them. You just got to make sure you know what you're getting yourself into before you do it. And so exactly. that, that, that verse really jumped out at me after all of that, realizing like I had to let Jesus break my pride, break my, my own self-centeredness in order to fully see who he really, or start to begin to fully see, because I'm not, I don't fully see Jesus yet, you know. Yeah. That's why Revelation is called Revelation. It's Jesus being revealed fully one day. One day. But, but that's kind of where he took me out of that season was to, to start to see how badly I need him, how I need to depend on him. And it's cool because he kind of wrapped it all up with a bow a couple months ago. I was reading th- or listening through a podcast series on the Old Testament, specifically the first five books of the Old Testament. And they made a really big point in that podcast that, um, that Jacob, Abraham's grandson, um, fought and wrestled with God for years to try and get things that God was always trying to just give him give and him. bless him with anyway. And Jacob had to have a wrestling match with God that broke his hip to a point where he had he walked the limp for the rest of his life in order to recognize how badly he depended on God. And in a lot of ways, I see myself in Jacob, that I wrestled and fought with God for things he was always trying to literally hand me on a silver platter because that's how salvation works. Right. But... He had to finally break my pride to the point where I, like, am living now with a scar on my elbow that's six inches long and a scar on my foot that's six inches long. And technically a scar on my my forehead or the one that nobody sees is what my foot feels like when I've walked 10,000 steps in a day, right. you know, or 15th. Or when I work at summer camp for a week, you know, when we take our kids down there and my feet 
are dead. I have to like not walk for like three days because it just hurts. It just hurts. You know, it's functional. The doctors have said I'm not going to break it again like that if I just walk on it. You know, I can play basketball. I can, I can, I can deadlift 400 something pounds. You know, like not a problem. But it, it still hurts sometimes because I'm reminded in those moments of how broken and and little I really am you, uh, as a human. Do you feel like that's a pretty bittersweet reminder of just everything yeah. you've been through from the past to now? Yeah. Well, it's funny you say it that way because when I first, one of the biggest rehab moments for me was being able to fully rotate my left arm palm up toward the ceiling. Um, I, I was not able to do that at first because your radius is called a radius specifically because it's responsible for the architecture of the radial movements of your arm. So when your arm corkscrews or you flip your hands up and down, you know, like you're going to serve things on a whatever, that, that's your radius is responsible for that um, or responsible for bearing the weight of that movement rather. And uh, so when I broke it, I couldn't do that. And uh, I remember very vividly a day where I had taken a hammer and I, I was doing this for months. I would just slowly let the hammer head, I'd hold the hammer, you know, straight up and let the head of the hammer just kind of slowly pull my arm until I got to a point where it just hurt too bad. And then I would stop there and let it sit there in that pain for a few seconds and then go back up, let it rest and do it again. And I, the day that I was able to finally let the hammer head go all the way to the table and my palm was completely up, I screamed. Like, I dropped the hammer. I ran into the, I hopped into the kitchen. I was like, Mom, <laughs> Mom, I did it. I was so excited. I can do it. And uh, for a long time, and now even, even now when I think about it, because life has gotten in the way now, and I don't remember it as often, but for a long time, every time I prayed, I would pray with my hands up. Wow. So that I could remind myself that, that I can only do this because God has healed me. God has brought me through this. I'm reminded in that moment of my brokenness. I'm reminded of his healing. I'm reminded all of those things. But like every time, and even now, it doesn't hurt, but I can feel a tension near my elbow from the scar tissue. Yeah. You know, of, and it just brings back all those moments all in one second. You know, just how good he is, how awesome he is, how broken I am. But I had a pastor in college who said this, and then, you know, I've talked for a while, so I'll let this kind of line lead you into whatever our next part is. But my pastor in college used to say all the time, if dependence on God is the goal, then weakness is an advantage. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And it is. You know, if if you were supposed to depend on God, then the things that make us weak are actually strengths for us, which is why Paul says, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses all the more because it's exactly in those moments where God shows up and he is awesome. We're broken vessels. We're clay pots with holes all through them so that God's light can shine through us. Yeah, I mean, if we could fix ourselves, there would be no reason for Jesus to have come and, you right. know, said that we needed him. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny you say that. I was, I'm looking into homeschooling our kids yeah. this, this coming year. Yeah. And I saw something that somebody had posted in one of their little homeschool rooms because I'm, you know, I'm on Pinterest. I'm looking, right. trying to figure out what to do. And it said, if it's not hard, you're not trying. Yeah. And so that's encouraging yeah. to hear you say that because I'm like, oh, I really like that. I'm going to sure. have to back that up and write this down. Yeah. But, you know, it, hearing your story and just listening back on your, you know, in the cornerstone. I mm-hmm. want to go back to that for a minute because there's a lot of things you said that I just want to, you know, emphasize and and tie that in a little bit more because yeah. that's so encouraging. Mm-hmm. You know, to hear that he broke you in order to put you back together. Yeah. And I, tr- I truly believe that is what he did. Yeah. You know, and I think the fact that this happened to you, although it was painful— you know, but a lot of people in the Bible go through painful stories, but yeah. those stories have an impact. Right. And even today, sitting here, even though I've heard this story once before in a small chat we've had, it hits so much harder today. Yeah. Hearing all the small details and mm-hmm. getting to see it from, you know, your perspective. Um, but, you know, even in Ephesians, it's Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, it states, For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one gracious hope for the future. And when you look at Christianity as a whole, like we're broken people, yeah. you know, and we're not one body until by his grace and his mercy, can we become that one body, that right. church that he is building. And, you know, when God puts you back together, it reminds me, and I see like this vision of just, you know, as God breathed us from dirt, 
I think about a builder who builds a house, Mm -hmm. and he picks up those dirty, dusty bricks out of the ground, washes them off, and as you so eloquently described about the cornerstone, he's placing our stones in his church to build this gracious building, to build this kingdom that he is going to be allowing us to be a part of. And for us, in the middle of it, it feels like we're looking at a pile of rubble. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not a comfortable feeling at all as you can claim yeah. <laughs> to fame here. Um, but I think it's so beautiful how the Lord can take any situation that we have been through, especially in your case, you know, to show His glory, mm-hmm. to grow you, Ty. I mean, if you look at the man you were back then and the man you are today, can you attest that you were completely different? I was not a man back then. I was a boy in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's amazing the things that the Lord puts us through in order For to sure. grow us and build us and make us more in His image. So, if you look at Ephesians 2.21, it also states this. We are carefully joined together in Him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. And, you know, you talked about how, you know, Jesus came and was making a lot of people mad in yeah. the Old Testament, you yeah. know. And, you know, we could go into a whole thing about the Pharisees and— you know, that's a whole nother day of talking. But what I find is so interesting is that, you know, you think about a stone in the ground, right? If you're going too fast and not paying attention, you hit the stone with your foot, you trip, mm-hmm. right? And I feel like sometimes that's how people look at Jesus nowadays, or that's how I'm seeing the world deal with Jesus. They see his word, which is like the stone, this foundational thing in the ground that we are supposed to you know, lean on and and seek and try to understand, and we're going so fast or we're just not, you know, we're not interested or paying attention, and we trip yeah. over that because we just have no interest in it. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes we let our own egos get in the way and assume more than what we should, right? and we're tripping over that cornerstone. Right. And so I want to bring us over to 1 Corinthians one eighteen real quick. And it says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. So I just, Ty, I just can't get over, you know, hearing your story and, you know, seeing how everything is tied together. Now, I have one little thing I want to ask you. Okay. I remember vividly about one little piece of your story um, that kind of shook me. And I didn't get to hear it today, so I want to see if we can kind of back up a minute. Okay. You told me that, you know, you were, you know, you had gone down to Texas and you had called your mom. Mm-hmm. And you brought your mom in and she was comforting you. Yeah. And you told me that God told you something. Yeah. Can you tell me what that was? Yeah. So, one of the things that night that was a shifting moment, really— at first, I wasn't sure what was happening, um, but it kind of became pretty clear pretty quickly. It was like God was speaking in my mind, and he said, what's it going to take to get you to talk to me? And I pondered that question for a minute, and I don't, I don't think I heard God audibly in that moment or like, you know, a light shone through the ceiling or whatever, but like... He had allowed me to fall off this cliff, go through all these things. It had been over a month since that happened. And, and I heard that question in my mind, and I thought, when is the last time I talked to him? And to be honest with you, I couldn't remember when that was. And so I pondered the question And thank God I was honest enough in that moment to tell him, you know, God, evidently falling to my death off a cliff isn't enough. Um, But I would sit there in my bed and I would cry and I would sit in pain and I would call my mother. I would watch Netflix. I'd do whatever I could to escape, to numb the pain, whatever. But never once did I catch myself going to Jesus to talk to him about it. And... That scared me because, you know, as much as falling off of a cliff face, put me face-to-face with my own depravity, realizing that I could fall off a cliff and that not be enough to wake me up to talk to Jesus 
scared me even more. Right. And so, you know, in, in a lot of ways, that moment was just as pivotal to getting me to see my depravity and, and understanding why I needed him. So it, 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 there was a physical weakness side to it in the cliff part, but then there was an emotional and a spiritual weakness side to it on that bed as well. And I'm, I'm grateful he let me talk through that question with him because I feel like if I hadn't, I would have continued to live in some lies that made me think I was doing okay, you know? Right. But So when you look back, I mean, overall, just kind of to, to wrap this all together, when you think about how you were before and then how you are now after the accident, can you honestly say that you would do it again, knowing where you are now? I would. Um, there, there are things about who I am now that are invaluable that never would exist if I hadn't gone through those things. Yeah. I don't think God pushed me off that cliff. And believe me, I wrestled through that question too. Like, why did I fall? Yeah. You oh, know? Yeah. Um, I think I fell because God allows things to happen in the world so that people can choose to love him back. Right. You know, in their own free will. Um, and because of that, because we're weak, there's going to be times where things are broken and things are messed up. Um, I think that's part of it. I think Satan had a hand in some of it. I don't want to give him too much credit and too much power because um, I think – this is a tangent, but I think Christians too often talk about Satan like he's bigger and badder than he really is because the Bible is very clear he's defeated. He only has as much power in your life as you give him. He's right. like the suggestion algorithm on Netflix. <laughs> The more you indulge in something, the more likely it is to recommend this other thing for you. And that's what he does. He watches what you do, and then he gives you things like it Wow! to try and use, which is not my image. I told that from my, my also from my college pastor, but <laughs> they were very good with little quippy um, lines. But I, I, do, I do think, though, that, that if, ha- if it hadn't happened, God wouldn't have used it because it just wouldn't have been. Right. You know, and I wouldn't be who I am now. But the beauty of Revelation is that when Jesus comes back, it's not that just that Jesus comes back and he gets rid of all the bad things. It's that he comes back, he gets rid of the bad things, and then we hit restart on day eight of creation. But this time, instead of it only being the things that happened between days one and seven and then day eight of creation, it's days one through seven. And then all of history and all of the meaning that comes from the story of Jesus and the cross, and now we're back to day eight. Yeah. And there's a fullness to the relationships with God we'll have in those moments that wouldn't be possible without all of that. I so I think that. my personal story and my own relationship with him, is a, it's a level of that. It's a part of that. I love that, Ty. So, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. So last little question here. If you can give um, anybody any kind of insight, you know, maybe some words of wisdom for those who are just struggling with their walk with God, you know, is there anything that you want to tell someone who might be in that position right now? Yeah, I mean, don't don't let it in your life get to the point where you have to fall off a cliff to see the truth that's there for everyone. You know, the Apostle Paul's cliff moment was when God knocked him off his horse and blinded him. I've heard I've heard people say before, if you just had enough faith, God would show up in a miraculous way in your life, like He did to Paul, and He would shine light in your life, and He would you know do all these things, and they 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 take Paul's story and say, if you have enough faith, God will do a miracle like that. And my perspective is I've been through something like what Paul went through where my own head was so far up my own rear end that I had to be thrown off a cliff to wake up that I don't – I wouldn't wish that moment on anybody. Yeah. The lesson I had to learn at that point was, Ty, you are not the center of the universe. Jesus is, and thank God he is. Because you don't have the ability to determine what's right and what's wrong for everybody. Because if you determine what's right and what's wrong for you, then it's got to be what's right and what's wrong for everybody else. Otherwise, right and wrong have no meaning and we're all just blowing hot air. Right. So, thank God Jesus is the center of the universe. Like, it, it, all you have to do for everything in your life to function the way it's supposed to is to get on board with the truth. That's it. That's it. The Pharisees weren't there. I wasn't there. A lot of us aren't there. Most of us aren't until we finally get on board with Jesus' Jesus's telling of the truth. If you notice the way Jesus does his ministry, he never goes, I think this is how the world works. Right. I would say this is what's going on. Jesus just made, just made statements. 
This is way, the way the world works. I am the vine. You are the branches. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And notice most of his statements had to do with himself, himself. being the center of everything. But he's either super conceited or he's right. Right, yeah. And if he's right, I want to be on board with him. And that's why in Romans 10, 9, it says if you, have, if you want to have a relationship with Jesus, you want to be saved, you, admi- you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and then you confess with your mouth that he is your Lord. You know, th- you're, you're just agreeing with Jesus. That's, right. that's just really fancy biblical talk for agreeing with Jesus. And to the Pharisees, they were threatened by Jesus because their lives were built on lies. Right. The lies, if, if your life is built on lies, then the truth will always be a threat. Of course. Always. So the, the biggest advice I can give from this is let my story be an example to anyone else out there listening of how important it is to just be honest with God about who you are and about who he is. And it doesn't mean you won't go through difficult things. Right. Because I still go through very hard diff- – some of the harder things in my life I'm going through now than I would have even compared to the cliff. But like – they make sense. They're not pointless. Jesus uses them. And I'm going into those things anticipating him to use them instead of having to learn that he will as an aftermath of them. Yeah. And yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of where I'm at with it. Just get on board with Jesus. And you know, my my the president of my university used to always say good people or good leaders learn from their mistakes and their successes. Great ones learn from the successes and mistakes of others. Oh wow, I like that. So learn from me. Like let let it be a, a proverb, I guess, for your life that that you, that what I went through on that cliff is where all of us are spiritually. Yeah. And if we don't figure that out, then we're all going to continue to live in lies until that stone crushes us into powder. So. I love that, Ty. That's yeah. Great words of wisdom. Well, man, I just feel like I've learned. I've learned so much from you. I've learned some new scriptures today that I, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't put into that perspective. And so, I just want to thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's honestly just thanks been for, such a pleasure. Thanks for letting me talk for a while. <laughs> yeah, man, I really enjoyed having you here today. All right, guys. So, the last few episodes, we have been talking about how God defines us, how we can patiently be waiting on God. And now today, how God can change you using the craziest of circumstances. So before we leave here today, I just want to encourage you and remind you, God loves you and has a plan for you. You have a purpose in Christ, and He is just waiting for that invitation for you to speak to Him. Let me pray us out for the day. Father, thank you for the person on the other side of this listening. I pray that their eyes will be open to seeing your goodness, your grace, and that you do love them and have a plan for them. I pray they start to seek your face in all circumstances. I pray that they make the decision to trust you and want to hear from you. And I pray as they sit here and hear these stories, that they can start to realize that even in those moments where we're broken, can you put everything back together for good? And I pray, Father, should they need that from you today, that they ask. I pray that their hearts start to yearn to hear from you, their ears be open to you, and for them to remember that you are near. I thank you, Father, for today, for Ty and his vulnerability of sharing his story with us. And I pray in your son's holy name that you bring this word to your people. May it multiply and spread. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you might be thinking, is God real? Can he really work in my life the way he does in the stories you're hearing on this show? And the answer is simple, yes. If you've never asked Jesus to come into your heart and have that relationship with Him, we wanna provide that opportunity for you today to make that decision. It starts with a relationship with Him. So wherever you are, God is going to meet you and change you. It starts with the decision to invite Him in and let Him be your Lord and Savior. If that's you, I would like to ask you to repeat after me. You can do this in your heart or out loud, wherever you are. God is listening. Repeat after me. Lord, I am a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. Make me clean again. I believe your son died on the cross for me and was raised three days later. Today, I confess that Jesus is your son and I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Please come into my heart and make me new. And in Jesus' name I pray, 
Amen. Friend, if you just said this prayer, let me encourage you. The Bible tells us that you have now been made new. All your sins are forgiven and you will join God in heaven one day. I am so excited for you. We would love to hear that you have made this decision. Please feel free to shoot us an email so we can get you a Bible and help you get connected. This is the greatest decision of your life. And I am so happy for you. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time for today, but we would like to say a special thank you to our listeners for joining us. And please be sure to check us out on our social media pages at Jesus Conversation Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And a special thank you to the generosity of Boiler Room Studios, located here in Alito, Texas, just outside of Fort Worth, for allowing us to record in their new state-of-the-art studio. Please check them out on Facebook at Boiler Room Studios for all your recording needs. Until next time, we are praying for you and asking God's blessing be upon you. Have a great week.